for the week of March 13th, 2022. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 576, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. And you're not retiring. I, I'm, I'm not, not retiring. Re- Tom Brady is not retiring. That was a shocker. <laughs> I have a, a, a family uh, uh, in-law who loves Tom Brady. And Tom Brady unretired on this guy's birthday, on Jason's birthday. He was like, it's like the best birthday gift ever. <laughs> now, what was going on there? I think that he wanted to, to, you know, the only way to not get traded and move to a different team. You say re- you retire. And then just like Joe Montana, I retire. Now I'm on the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, he, you know... <laughs> I don't he think it retire. was a ploy to avoid being fired. I think he genuinely was torn as to whether this was the time and then just, just changed his mind. So many athletes, it's very hard to walk away when you can still play something. You know, it's really hard not to just grind yourself into nothing and look a little foolish those last few years because you keep wanting. It's all you've done your whole life. It's all you've ever cared about and loved. I mean, other things, but you know, it's the focus of your life and letting go is really hard, especially if you're like, I can do one more year. You keep doing it until you really realize you can't do one more year. <laughs> it's not enough. You know, when you get that close to the postseason and the, you get into the postseason, you almost get to the Super Bowl. It's hard to say, ah, oh, I'm done. You know, you, you want to finish with a win. You know, and even then you're like, I could win another one. <laughs> he was basically what? Like, uh, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were were literally like right there, ready to be in the Super Bowl this year. And it was just, uh, you know, well, they an lost overtime. in the postseason. They lost in the postseason. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah uh, so there I you go. It ain't easy. Maybe he wa- yeah, I think maybe he wanted to play for the 49ers and maybe the 49ers are going to keep their quarterback. I don't know, but here's the thing. I keep coming back too. I keep like, you know, I keep trying to retire. I'm like, no, this is it. This is my last showbiz sandbox. And then you keep saying, oh, maybe just one more. <laughs> Wait till we get to a thousand. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm waiting for. When, when I have seven rings like Tom Brady or eight well, or however many he has. Now. Well, what will we talk about on episode 576? Or should we say... Uh, episode 424 until we get to 1,000. You know, count our way down to the, like the 1,000th episode. 423 episodes to go, 422, 421. Maybe that'd be more exciting than counting up. All right, so we're not Elon Musk. We're not counting down to a rocket launch, but we are doing a new episode. What's on the show this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are getting closer and closer to the big night. Of course, that big night is uh, the 1,000th episode of Showbiz Sandbox or the IRA Awards, which is going to come first. Now, do you want to explain what the IRA Awards is, Michael? Well, it's not the Oscars, but every year, friends of mine, people in the business, people who write about entertainment in the media, write award-winning books about filmmakers and, and, the, and the industry, people who work in the business at studios, people who have gone on to win Oscars. They're no longer members, but that's happened. So we all get together and just talk about our favorite films of the year and do our votes in all the usual categories, editing, score, you know, costumes and of course, best picture. So it's a lot of fun and happens this year, the weekend before the Oscars. So it's your last chance to get a buzzy idea of what everybody's talking about. Uh, Alert, probably nothing on the Oscar list will be on our list for the best films of the year. (laughs) And if you win an Oscar, as Michael just pointed out, you have to leave the IRA committee. (laughs) That's right. You're out. You're out. (laughs) Yes. Well, while we wait breathlessly for the IRA winners, we've got news on the Annie's. 
the DGA Awards and the BAFTAs. If you're getting ready to fill out your Oscar ballots, this is really your last chance for some real tea leaf reading. We've also got an update on two wars, the big one in Ukraine and the little one at Disney as Bob 2.0, Bob uh, Chapek, he bungles his first test with employees. On Inside Baseball, a real treat will be joined by our guest, producer and director, Frank Marshall. His new documentary is about the 50th anniversary of Jazz Fest in New Orleans, uh, or as I like to say, Nolans. You just smush the words together. It's the only way to eat beignets, too, by the way. You got to just... Anyway, uh, we'll talk to him about what it's like to make documentaries in the age of streaming, how the industry has changed, and what's more fun, producing... Or directing. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. We have a link to ComScore in our show notes. We also pull information from all sorts of places. Wikipedia. The numbers, box office profit, box office mojo, all the trades, you name it. And the number one film around the world is, say it's Berlin. The Batman. <laughs> That's right. We got to get that back in action. We've got the the filter so we can do that deep voice. We've got to make use of it. We spent the money for it on Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. So we want to use it for this we, film, The Batman. We had to save up. We had to save up again to, to repurchase the rights, the license. That's- that's right. So the Batman, or as we call it, the Darkest Night, made $207 million this week. It's about to pass the $500 million mark and still going very strong. At number two around the world is a one-night event only. It's the K-pop group from Korea, BTS. That's sort of redundant, K-pop from Korea. But their new live concert, somewhat live concert, BTS, Permission to Dance on Stage, Soul is the official name of their live streaming performance. It wasn't airing live in some countries because you would have had to gone to the movie theater at like three or four in the morning to see it live in the United States. Not that some fans wouldn't have been happy to do it, but they're one of the biggest acts in the world right now. They held this live event and streamed it in theaters on Saturdays in the U.S. It was playing on about 700 screens, or I should say North America, and about 3,000 screens worldwide. People were paying about $35 to go see this, at least here in this country, and it made $33 million worldwide. So almost a million people in one day turned out to see this live streaming event from BTS. I believe that's a record for a live event performance over one, you know, one day. So I would imagine it is. And yeah. I would also say that, you know, I'm always asked, well, how much money can you really make with an event cinema? You know, the Met does its thing with the operas and they make money. But how much could you really make? To which I would say, well, we now have an answer. <laughs> this we have, is we have a new standard, you, $30 million and up. You, Certainly I mean, that's it's, about, it's not like if, if like, you know, uh, I don't know, name an artist. You know, there's nobody bigger right now than BTS, I don't think. No, no. Right at the moment, they're probably the biggest act in the world. Except yeah, for Bruno, so, but we don't talk about him. Oh, that's true. Shh, don't, yeah. I can't believe he's Speaking of $30 million, dollars, you, that's, that's just about what Uncharted made. That's the new film starring Tom Holland. Blasted off from a video game. It made $29 million this week, and it passed the $300 million mark, but not in Poland. That country has banned It's Poland, right? Yeah, that country has banned the movie because they have a scene where they show a map showing the South China Sea, and that map is a map that would be friendly or amenable to China. China would like that map because it shows their territorial ambitions or what they claim they have the rights to in the South China Sea. When you see a map in the movies, 
you know, does it mention Taiwan? Then China's not going to show it in their theaters. This movie chose to show a map that China would not object to, but now other countries are saying, uh, we're not so happy about that. <laughs> so that's an interesting issue. It's come up before and it will keep coming up again. But Uncharted is making good money, $300 million worldwide. Speaking of China, too cool to kill the Chinese comedy uh, about a guy trying to break into the entertainment biz that made $12 million and the Battle of Lake Shangjian 2 uh, that made about $10 million. Too Cool to Kill passed the $400 million mark. And the Battle of Lake Changzhong, uh, that passed $625 million. That's pretty good, especially since China is facing a big COVID spike. That country has a very strict policy, a no, no, no exceptions policy. They just shut everything down, uh, zero tolerance when... COVID is spiking again, and it is spiking. China and Hong Kong are having some of the worst outbreaks since the two years ago, since this whole thing began. Shanghai, cinemas have been closing down. Shanghai Disneyland has some restrictions. In fact, if you want to get into Shanghai, you have to test negative. They will not let you in that city of 24 million people unless you first test negative. The city of Shenzhen, that entire city of 17 million people, shut down. Everyone is told to stay at home. Same thing for the province of Jilin. That is home to 24 million people. That's been shut down. Uh, so we've been told, or at least the experts say, that this variation on COVID probably won't have the same impact as Omicron did. Let's hope that's true. They're certainly not doing great with it in China. Or more importantly, uh, wait, I thought it was the Omicron variant that that's going around I, there. I believe no, this is the Delta Cron, I believe. I believe this is oh, the next Delta Cron. Okay. Yeah, this is I believe I have the name right again. Go to actual medical professionals for your information on this. But I believe it's the next variation that is causing problems in China. Uh, perhaps I'm wrong about that, but I believe that's the case. That's the new one that we're worrying about. But there are various reasons why they don't think it will have the same impact here. But we're going to keep hearing about this all over the world until most of the world gets vaccinated, which, of course, it's not yet. And we need to help make that happen. But in China, factories are shutting down. Businesses are not able to you know, create stuff and ship it around the world. That's going to have a big impact on business. And back to Hollywood, of course, that means movies can't show in theaters if people are not there to go see them. So that could have an impact over the next few weeks. Speaking of Spidey and Tom Holland, Spider-Man No Way Home still making money, another $10 million. That's at $1,876,000,000. And the movie looks like it will pass $800 million uh, within the next week or two to be North America, one of the three movies in history to gross that much money in North America alone. Channing Tatum's having a good year. Dog made another $10 million. So did Death on the Nile for Kenneth Branagh, who, of course, is enjoying good momentum for his movie Belfast, thanks to all the awards that were handed out this week. And then you get down the charts. Sing 2 made another $7 million. Jackass Forever must have opened up in some new territories. That bumped up to $6 million. It's at $76 million and counting. Certainly a profitable film. And Pixar. They didn't get their movies in theaters in North America, but Turning Red opened up in a few territories around the world where Disney Plus is not available, and that movie made about $4 million. That's for a movie that has a reported budget of $175 million. If you had that movie and you had the option and times were normal, even if you're planning to put it on Disney Plus exclusively for the rest of its life, wouldn't it be nice to put it in theaters, make it an event? But I guess the problem is they don't have enough new content coming to Disney Plus, and they really want to keep subscribers happy until the content is flowing better. And they're like, we're going to take this movie and put it on Disney Plus exclusives so people feel like they're getting full value. You know, uh, certainly 
it has a one week run at the Empire, I think, in New York. If I'm well, not for, that's for awards purposes. That's all. But that's not right. a commercial. It was run. playing on one screen. It was playing right, on one screen it's, on Friday. It's, for, it's right. They do that. That's just for you know right, awards right, right. season availability. Yeah. The, the point I'm trying to make is it was playing on one screen on Friday. Saturday, six screens. That should tell you something. People, you know, it was it was popular enough that they were like, oh, we're going to need more screens for this. Well, I mean, we know it would be popular. I'm, I'm just surprised Disney let them do that. You know, yeah, I mean, we knew it would be popular. They, they often release movies for one week only, you know, in December. For oh, yeah, some absolutely. Technical purposes. And then, you know, they, but they don't say, oh, if it's really popular, you can just put it on more screens on, you know, the next day. No, <laughs> you know, you're, they only want it there for one week because they're going to open it wide in February or March. And so. So this is obviously an unusual situation. But yeah, Pixar got good reviews. Of course, it's popular. Absolutely. People knew it was out and had the chance to see it, especially if it wasn't playing in their home. They would turn out for it. No question. And they'll turn out for movies in China. China has okayed some releases. Hotel Transylvania, Transformania, that's opening up in April, but that's long after its U.S. release of January 14th. And Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, that's getting a much better release date it's being released the same time as most of the world that's on april 8th that's one week before it opens up in the u.s so that movie will not be pirated at all and it's going to have a chance to make money in china and for now that's the biggest market in the world is it still it, this may be the year where the u.s leapfrogs back and becomes number one again we'll have to see yeah, I believe uh, China right now is uh, the biggest mar movie market in the world, and it's slated right now to at least remain so in 2022. Speaking right of movie now. markets, uh, one place where you can go to a market for movies to be bought and sold and screened is South by Southwest, which is, of course, the festival that covers music and tech and movies. You've been there a long time ago, and I think you're attending virtually this year. Uh, did you see anything that really stuck out to you? You said, wow, this movie is one that's going to gain attention. Uh, yeah, no. Okay. So what well, ultrasound is, is that what you're talking about? The movie that will gain attention that, that movie well, that's, was not, that, that's not a, that wasn't at South by Southwest. No, that's not what I'm no, no. About. It's, it's a movie by Rob Schroeder, Vincent Cartizer stars. It's a looping narrative and I don't want to give anything away. It's just, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's an indie film worth seeing. Linoleum is in the feature competition at South by Southwest starring Jim Gaffigan directed by Colin West. The reason I mentioned those two films together will only become apparent after you see both of them. <laughs> I'm not going to, so... Okay. All right. But it's good. So it, the, Jim Gaffigan plays like a, a dual... Is a it dual good? Jim Gaffigan. Yeah. Yes. It's good? It's one of the best films of the year? Well, not every film has to be the best film. Well, that's of the my year. definition of a good film, a film that I will want to remember years from now. You think it's a, a, a strong, solid film? It's the best Jim Gaffigan performance of all time, then, is what you're saying. If it's a good movie, when has he ever I been in a good movie? I don't know every performance he's ever done. I mean, he's, he's a, he's a, a comedian, comic. right? Yeah, he's not known for his performances. So. Uh, he's, so he's, has he made a breakthrough? I mean, he's done acting. He's been on TV. He's been in Super Troopers. He's been on the. He was on the Ellen Show. He was a part of that cast. But I've never thought of him as a particularly good actor. Are you saying this is a breakthrough for him that people will now see him in a new light? Well, I think they'll see him as uh, you know a, a good actor. That's for sure. He is very good in this. Okay, yeah, and he plays cool. two roles. He plays two roles. All right. Cool. Um, and then I would say, and look, I've seen a lot of movies over the last, uh, maybe seven, eight days. I have seen uh, lots of movies that I would never mention. I saw lots of plays. In fact, I saw the Lehman trilogy. 
Oh, cool. Live or on streaming? Live. And was that good? Have you seen, have you seen it? No, I have not. I, I was, that was one show that I missed in New York. It was only playing at the Armory. Now it's come back, but I'm not there. It's actually quite good. Uh, oh, it's, three it's three supposed hours to long. be tremendous. It's supposed to be unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's three hours I don't know about long, actually. So. I've heard nothing but praise. So everybody I know who's All seen right. it thought it was terrific. Yeah, it's one of the most acclaimed shows of the last three years. Well, the other uh, film that I saw that, uh, you know, in the feature narrative competition, Soft and Quiet by Beth D. Oh, I'm going to mess this up. It's Beth Arahulio? De Arahulio? Arahulio, yes, probably. That's actually probably correct. Beth de, de Arahulio. That's a mouthful for someone like me. It's a single take thriller told in real time, starring all women, except there is one guy for like five minutes. Uh, and it's, I think, going to get noticed because of its execution and its subject matter, neither of which I will uh, tell you because it would spoil the surprises as they come at you in real time. And this is why you never had a job as a film critic. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, it's a good movie. Trust me. <laughs> I can't tell you anything about it, but trust me. The Thief well, Collector, I, I can tell you about this movie. I, you know, there was a point in this movie and every time I thought, okay, this movie's got to end soon. I mean, how much more could they tell you about these two people? Jerry and Rita Alter. Now, this is a movie about the William de Koenig painting Woman Ochre, which in 1985 was, you know, it was stolen actually out of an art museum in Arizona the day after Thanksgiving. It is one of the most valuable paintings of the 20th century. It was stolen and disappeared. Nobody could find it for over 30, I think 32, 33 years. Where it was found, and I'm not giving this away because of course it was in the news, it was found in Jerry and Rita Alter's bedroom. Okay, these are like, you know, a former music teacher, a former speech pathologist. It was hanging in their bedroom for 30 something years. And like once they get through the painting, you think, okay, well, their life, their painting, there's you think, well, that's got to be it, right? Oh my goodness. This thing unspools you're like, "Wait, they did what? Wait, how did they wrote it that what? No way. Every minute that it lasts beyond that, you're just like, well, this has got to end because it, they can't have done. Oh my God, you must be kidding me. I mean, this is, it's one of those stories where you're like. And that's not your favorite movie of the festival? Oh, so far that is without a doubt my favorite movie of the festival, The Thief Collector. Oh, okay. All right. Well, good. Sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. One story that also doesn't seem to end is Bob Chapek's No Good, Very Bad, Horrible Week. That's out of order, but you get the idea. He's, of course, the head of Disney, and he's had a horrible week in terms of the Disney stance on Don't Say Gay, this anti-gay bill in Florida. Uh, Bob Chapek is more conservative than his predecessor, Bob Iger. He doesn't want to get involved in public politics. He doesn't want to voice his personal opinion, much less have an opinion for the company on all sorts right. of different issues. And he thinks, why am I talking about this stuff? I don't want to talk about it. I just want people to come to the park and enjoy themselves. And why get embroiled in this stuff? Well, that doesn't work in this day and age. And his explanation of why at first they didn't speak out on the bill and then defending himself got him in deeper hot water. Then employees released public letters to him, excoriating him and basically tearing down his arguments piece by piece. He's apologized again. He realizes he must do better. Uh, they tried to donate money to the human rights campaign. They said, no, thank you. You're not really doing anything substantial. We can't take this money and let you, you know, whitewash your behavior. Uh, it's, it's getting complicated and difficult. It is a genuine challenge to his 
job. It's not that he's about to be fired, but it is a challenge. You do not want to have half your employees angry at you. And there has to be a way to navigate and decide what public issues must I take a stand on and in what way. So they're donating money to politicians passing these laws and their employees say, well, why are you giving them money? So, you know, and glad finally the Gay Alliance Against uh, uh, Defamation um, is saying, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation is saying, we are now going to start judging companies, not just on how they treat their employees, but on the political donations they make to individual politicians and to the outside groups that support those politicians. So even if you say, well, I didn't give money to him or her, but you gave it money to a group that funnels money to them, that's going to be a mark against uh, their rating for you. So there's a lot going on here. You can follow it all elsewhere. I actually feel a little sorry for Bob. He's like, I don't want to talk about this stuff. I just want to run the theme parks, you know? <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Did you... um? In, in New York, did you see uh, sell by date by Sarah Jones? This is the because you said it's a complicated. You did. Did you see that? No, I did not. OK, because it, it's it, it's it, it was turned into a movie. Uh, Meryl Streep uh, produces it. It was at South by Southwest. It's it's kind of a documentary about about uh, sex work and prostitution, whether it should be decriminalized. Now, that's the, I, th- I thought maybe you had seen it because it was a a. a well-known one woman show in New York for years. And mm-hmm. that's the reason I bring it up a very complicated subject that even the person telling the story doesn't know what's correct. Well, no, I know what's correct for Bob Tabak and Disney. I'm not confused about that. I'm just saying in general, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're in Florida. You do not want the state to become a pariah the way Georgia was becoming a pariah for laws that passed. And you don't want all your filmmakers saying, I don't want to come to your state and make movies. Or you don't want them saying, I don't want to come to Florida and go to your theme parks because this is an ugly state. And I, I object to that state's behavior. You kind of, you know, it's an important, you can't not take a stand at some points. And there's difference between, you know, taking a stand on, well, what should be the taxation rate for people on capital gains? That's not quite the same as attacking individual human beings and not thinking everyone deserves respect and the same basic rights. So, you know, your employees aren't going to let you get away with that. And that's what he's finding out as the head of Disney. So I'm not confused about what he should do, but I empathize and I understand in general, it's hard running a big corporation and figuring out, you know, what do I do, when, where, why, and how. In this particular case, no, he was wrong from the get-go. But, you know, that's what happens when you speak up. Of course, you get held accountable. Disney is very proud now of having gay pride days at the parks. They never were before. They used to kick people out. If two men tried to dance, they would kick them out. You know, they, they weren't supportive until like two minutes ago. So then when he, when he, when he tried to use that as an example of how progressive Disney was, he got slapped down. Other companies around the world uh, promote International Women's Day. They say, oh, we're, I'm making up a company, IBM, and we support International Women's Day. Well, that can come to bite you in the ass. There's a, a UK person that started a Twitter account, an automated Twitter account. They said, look, if you post support for International Women's Day, we are going to post your gender pay gap. So you say, we love women. And then you find out women make 30% less than the men at that particular company. That's what they did. And it worked very well and got them a lot of unwelcome attention. So you want to take a stand? You better sure you back it up. Well, I'm taking and- a stand here. If it, and I'm t- going on record. If Disney finds me dancing at one of their parks, they have they should permission kick to- you out. <laughs> they should get that could be dangerous. If anybody sees that, they could be scarred for your, life. Your children will turn you in. Exactly. Right. It's no fun talking about all this politics, but it is impacting the entertainment business. The war in Ukraine is doing that. In music, Universal Music Group, Sony Music, and Warner Music Group have all suspended operations in Russia, along with the concert company Live Nation. 
in movies. Disney and Sony lately have paused all business in Russia. Uh, when do you speak out? When are you brave enough? I wouldn't demonize the Russian people or any individual who chooses not to speak out against their government. I might condemn someone if they adamantly and aggressively support the government in doing something illegal. Or if you're a, a billionaire in Russia, your, your, your hands are dirty by, by definition, unfortunately. But Iran is also a country that's not a, a particularly free country. Uh, that government is supportive of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. However, top film talent in Iran have denounced it publicly. There are top people who have gone public disagreeing with their government. And that that takes courage. I don't know if I would have it, so I applaud them for doing it. In television, Discovery has suspended operations in Russia. They have 15 channels going off the air. But guess what? For years now, they've been in a deal with the Putin-controlled National Media Group. They've been doing business in Russia. It's not a secret that it's an autocracy controlled by a brutal dictator who has hundreds of billions of dollars sequestered off, off, offshore. <laughs> you know, Warner Media, they are pausing all new business in Russia. Channels are off the air. Most journalism uh, institutions, radio, TV, paper, have pulled their journalists out of the country because it's not safe for them to continue reporting on what's happening in the war. Uh, for example, even editing Wikipedia can be dangerous. I've done that here in the US. In Belarus, they have arrested a local person who was a prominent editor on the Belarusian version of Wikipedia. That person was arrested, presumably, I guess, for uh, the coverage on the pages involving the war and calling it a war. They have been arrested. So that's very scary. Amazon, they have paused Prime Video and, this is the big one, all shipping to Russia. You know, it's one thing to say you can't watch the Reacher program. It's another thing to say we're not going to deliver your packages in you know 48 hours. So those are all having big impacts. And this was something I hadn't thought about. Video games. You had to explain this to me, right? They're pausing commerce in Russia. What does that mean? They're pausing, uh, basically they're pausing the ability to buy the virtual currency that's inside a game and they- So like you're in a game and you want flashy new armor or a cool new hat, you right. can use your virtual currency and you gotta pay like five bucks to get it and then you get a hundred prong prongs or whatever the currency might be in the game and you can use that to buy abilities or weapons or clothes, right? Correct. Yeah. And then of so, course, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, but the thing is, and, and I realize that, you know, Yes, all of this needs to happen. At the same time, the reality is none of the, you know, you can't charge anything in the country. It's, it's, it's hard to just do business there. So well, a lot they, are, of this they are allowing, yeah, some people, they, it's an easy decision when the ruble is collapsing yeah. to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pause business. Right. But you also take the risk of alienating your customer base for the next 10 or 20 years. They say, you know what? I don't want to eat at McDonald's anymore. You chose to leave the country. You weren't forced to. You said, we're out of here. And maybe that says, I don't want to have a Big Mac anymore ever again. So that's it still can have real consequences. And in video games, I believe people can still play games while they're in Russia. They're just not going to make money off that. So Fortnite is still up, but they're stopping all commerce. That's according to Epic Games. Nintendo, they have an eShop. Uh, it's inaccessible right now. It's in maintenance mode. That's in quotes. So they're not saying we're shutting down in support of the war. But if you're in Russia, you say, sorry, the shop's not available. We're doing maintenance work. So, you know, everybody's trying to find out the, the right way to do things. In sports, the Premier League has backed out of a Russian TV deal. And the UK, of course, has seized the Chelsea Soccer Club before the Russian oligarch who owns it could sell it off and then donate some of the proceeds, perhaps, to um, help Ukrainian refugees. They're like, yeah, no, that's not yours. And that's having a big impact because they're freezing how they can still pay players and do other things, but the deals and things that they can do for day-to-day -day operations are sort of tenuous right now. So that's actually going to have an impact on the game itself.
Now, I know we already did box office, mm-hmm. but you, you mentioned Wikipedia, right? Yeah. And, and editing Wikipedia. You mentioned that the person from Belarus was, was you know, arrested uh, and that you've edited Wikipedia. You've also yes. mentioned Wikipedia today by saying, hey, that's where I got some of the, the box offices is listed mm-hmm. there. And so uh, I went, when you said that last week, I went to Wikipedia and I looked it up and I found, I said, oh, well, I can add to this. I can augment this. I can add to, to how much money the Batman made in IMAX. You know, that's in its opening weekend. I could add to that. And I if, even had if, a source. You can be an editor. You have to have a link, a proper source. That's right. Yeah, you can do that. And I did that. And they, the person who edited that page undid it because Box Office Mojo apparently doesn't like it when somebody else edits a page that they believe is theirs. Well, that's Box Office problem. Mojo does not control that page. It's Wikipedia. Uh, at, Box Office Mojo look, does not, well... There's no page. It. It's individual films. What do you mean? Look at it. It's a 10 million page thing. Box Office Mojo does not control Wikipedia. How do they even know who these people are? Like, in other words, how does Belarus know? Like, hey, we have to arrest this person. They're not secret. They're not. Well, you know, they're, 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 they're not secret on the page, but I don't know. They can track them. They can see them online. They can see that computer. They can trace back, you know, you can trace back where changes were made online to somebody's own computer, their IP address, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess yeah, that's probably yeah. how they did it. There's no privacy. Privacy is a myth. Yes, but it, is that supposed it, to lead me into something that... Uh, about the award season? It does, because privacy is not a myth when it comes to award season. We don't know how many votes were cast for like last year's Best Picture winner. I think 50 years after movies come out, they should start to release that stuff because it would be fun and give a little juice. But it is award season. The Academy is really embroiled in controversy. I think this is much bigger than it's getting covered. Pretty much every major Academy, per anybody who's been nominated says they denounce the Academy for taking eight categories off the air. Older people who've been nominated in years past, like James Cameron, John Williams, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, 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 not uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro, they've all said this is terrible. They should change. Go back. Do not kick these categories off the air in any way, shape, or form. I don't know if I can name a single big name who has supported the Academy, except for, I believe, one of the hosts who said, well, they're trying. One of the hosts, I think it was Regina Hall, but I'm, I shouldn't swear to that, have said, well, I don't know. You know, They're trying to do their best. It's not easy. So I think it's really a big problem. The guilds, the people, there's still a lot of anger about this. People are not accepting this as a fait accompli. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, no, that is true. And you hear it certainly in this town, in Los Angeles, you hear it. It's like every conversation is about this. And uh, frankly, I'm like, what, you know, I'm not nominated. I don't like, why does every com- people are, what do you think? Well, like, like I go to pick to a kid's soccer game. They're like, Hey, uh, Oscars, you're in a, the industry. What do you think of the, what do you think of the thing? I'm like, uh, <laughs> you know what? Uh, I think here's what I think. I went to a soccer speaking of soccer i went to a soccer awards banquet for my it high lasted school. 47 like, hours <laughs> it lasted four and a half hours oh that's insane I, I was literally banging my head on the table and the person next to me just like patted me on the shoulder i was like the oscars are shorter than this and the whole <laughs> table laughed <laughs> it's it ridiculous four and a half hours Right. So there are ways to tighten up the Oscars, but this may not be the answer. The Tony Awards have a partial answer where they could at least make a gesture of solidarity. The Tony Awards are airing live coast to coast on June 12th. They will do the first hour streaming. So you can watch the first hour streaming in full, and then it will switch to CBS for the other three hours. 
You know what, Oscar? At the very least, you say, well, of course, we'll stream that first hour so everybody can watch it who wants to. That at least makes a lot of sense, right? Yes, absolutely. I yeah, think I they mean, should do it. No harm, and they should be doing that anyway, and there's no harm in doing that, and that's not going to placate people, but at least it shows you're listening and have something you can offer to say, well, what about this? You know, this is a step towards, you know, parody. Uh, but there are a lot of other award shows that are leading up to the Oscars at the DGAs. Jane Campion made history when winning for The Power of the Dog. Maggie Gyllenhaal won for Best First Film, another win for women, so that's cool, for her movie The Lost Daughter. And Stanley Nelson won for Best Doc for Attica, which I have not seen yet. And then the BAFTAs. Now, the DGA, of course, is a guild, so we care about what they say. We also care about the costume designers, but their guild has not chosen a best film overall. So they have spread out their votes. So the fact that they gave awards to Dune, Coming to America, and my Oscar pick, Cruella, is not that telling because they didn't lay their money down and say, this is the best costumes of the year. That's what they have to do for us to really pay attention. The Annie's does that. There are people in the Annie's who vote on the Oscars, not a ton of overlap, but some, and they chose the Mitchells versus the Machines. That beat out Encanto, which we see as the front runner, or certainly I do. Now, the BAFTAs, there are some people with the BAFTAs who also vote for the Oscars, but it's not a huge overlap, but it is seen as a good precursor, and boy, pretty much all the stuff that's in the mix was winning at the BAFTAs. The Power of the Dog won Best Picture and Best Director, but Belfast won the Best British Film, Encanto won Best Animated Film, Drive My Car won Best Foreign Film, or Film Not in the English Language, and Summer of Soul won Best Doc. And even through the acting awards, you can see it looks like those are a strong precursor to what may win on Oscar night. Uh, Critics' Choice Awards came out, not a guild at all. Their votes and their wins were almost in lockstep with the BAFTA. So if you're looking for momentum and you want to get fooled and say, well, the critics, they don't really count, but they sure voted along with the BAFTAs and some of them vote. So when you get in a look at the Oscars, I've had a lot of people tell me last few weeks, Coda could win because it won SAG. Belfast could win. They love that movie. It's by an actor turned director. It's a Valentine to movies in a way. Uh, you know, they see a lot of momentum for those two movies. I still say The Power of the Dog, it has the most nominations. It's going to win Best Director. I still think it's going to win Best Picture. Sam Elliott or no Sam Elliott? Uh, if you want to know what that's all about, certainly look it up. Google Have Sam Elliott, and, and congratulations, there's, there's a good hour of your day. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Uh, so, you know, I mentioned Amazon Prime shutting down in Russia, so they aren't able to watch Reacher right now, but we do have Nielsen reports on streaming. They cover Amazon Prime, Disney+. Plus. Hulu, Netflix, and Apple. This is smart TV viewing in North America only. The numbers are about a month behind. So we're looking at the most watched properties on streaming for the week of February 7th through February 13th. So it's literally a month ago. The most popular show in streaming was, in fact, Reacher. The Lee Child character brought to television. Tom Cruise played him in the movie. Now he's being played by a big guy. And uh, it had a modest drop from last week. What, but 1.59 billion minutes were viewed. Very strong hold from the first week where 1.8 billion minutes were viewed. It's the first regular series from Amazon to hit number one on these charts. So that's very cool for them to see. So that is a big property. When you look at it, there's eight Netflix properties in the originals, one Amazon, and one Disney. So uh, you can look at our charts and see what went up, what went down. We've also got a report on the revenue in North America per user 
That's really important because like Netflix, for example, is at the top of the list. It makes $14.78 off every user in North America. That's as of March 2022. Compare that to Disney Plus. They're only getting $6.68 per user. That's a lot lower. You'd have to more than double your subscribers uh, of Disney, of Netflix to make the same amount of money. And of course, they're nowhere near that. Or, you know, so Netflix isn't just ahead in total subscribers. It's way ahead of Disney Plus in terms of revenue. Others are doing better. Hulu is at $12.96. HBO Max is at $11.90. Discovery is at $10. Peacock is at $10. Paramount is at $9. And most of those include ads. So Right. And that's why you, you, you see them wanting to go, you know, HBO Max and Netflix. That's not Netflix. Uh, Disney Plus. They all want to have ads because, of course... That would boost the ARPU uh, for for those services. Right, and it also helps pay for stuff like sports. HBO Max has got into sports last week, and this week Apple TV Plus made a deal for Friday night baseball games. Those are very expensive. Netflix has always said, we're not interested in sports. However, when it comes to an ad-supported tier, they say, look, we have no plans, but never say never. And you just know like what? they did it. Uh-huh. Major League Baseball said, uh, yeah, we want a billion dollars for those Friday night games. And Tim Cook went, hold on a second, reached into his back pocket, pulled out his wallet and went, okay, yeah, I can have that. Right, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think a billion dollars is still a big deal. So, uh, you know, I don't think Tim Cook made that decision rightly. I'm not even sure it was the right decision. I feel like you'd get a lot more bang for your buck using that money to vastly increase your programming and what, what they should have done years ago, buy a library. Yes, I agree. In fact, you know what would also be a big deal if like there was a somebody could judge whether that was a good deal or not, you know, the billion. You know what? Actually, why don't we move into Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense, because I think our first story will actually tell us that. Judge Judy. Remember her? I do. She, yeah, she's a hit. Even in streaming. That's the word from imdb.tv, which is where Judge Judy now resides. The streamer announced it was renewing Judy Justice for season two, which is no surprise since the Judith Scheindland courtroom drama is indistinguishable from her long-running show, Judge Judy. And the streamer's biggest original series, by far, it's the biggest thing, I think, on IMDb TV. IMDb boasted that viewers watched 25 million hours of Judge Judy. I mean, sorry, my mistake, Judy Justice. <laughs> now, over the season, they they couldn't, that, that's how many minutes, or sorry, hours they viewed. We have to call IMDb and tell them, no, 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 we, we measure this in minutes. Not, <laughs> not. Uh, don't worry, I've done that for you. Is it a big deal or a big whoop? It seems like a big whoop, but in fact, I've rethought it, and actually it's a big deal. First, I said 25 million hours. Well, how many minutes is that? I timed 25 million hours by 60 because there's 60 minutes in an hour. That's 1.5 billion minutes. But that's how much Judge Judy was watched over the entire year, over the entire time that it's been on, on IMDb TV. And I said, Reacher just did that in a week. And it did more than that the week before. So I said, that's kind of sad. However, IMDb TV, who do you know who has it? I have it because my mom wanted to watch Judy Justice, uh, though she doesn't like it and she's angry about it. But (laughs) <laughs> I, I got the app. I put it on there so she could watch that. We've barely been back to it. How many people have downloaded IMDb TV? No idea. Can't find any numbers, but I'm going to guess it's very, very few, which means the people who did watch it watched Judge Judy a lot. 
So I think that 1.5 billion minutes seems small compared to things that already have a big wide reach. But given how small this service is, how small the base of subscribers, how few people already watch it, this is what's turning on the lights for them. Judge Judy is doing her job. She's getting people to download the service. And then they go, oh, Mad Men is on here. Some other stuff is on here. Maybe I'll keep watching. So are there commercials? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. It's a free service. You don't have to pay for it. You can just download it. Oh, okay. It. Yeah. You know what's not free? Theater. Theater, theater costs money. No, no, yeah. Well, in the U.S., you know that Tony Awards take place in June, the, the, the big prizes for Broadway. In the United Kingdom, the Olivier Awards take place on April 10th, and the nominees have just been announced. Sutton Foster, she had a good week. She's on Broadway in The Music Man with Hugh Jackman, and her revival of Anything Goes received a ton of nominations, including one for Foster as Reno Sweeney in her West End debut. I, you would have thought you would have been on the West End by now. In any case... The Eddie Redmayne revival of Cabaret also got a lot of love, as did The Life of Pi, which is a book, not a show. So this must be a, let me get my erase. Oh, wait, no, actually, it looks like it's going to be this year's War Horse. Thanks to puppetry used to bring alive the tiger, which shares a lifeboat with our hero. Indeed, one of the nominations for Best Supporting Actor, get this, they are the seven actors who bring the creature to life. Cool. So it takes seven actors, one tiger. Not not getting the glass slipper, by the way, was Andrew Lloyd Webber's broad, crowd-pleasing spin on Cinderella. So he'll have to sit this one out. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a big whoop, of course. It's just the annual award season, but it's really nice to have. You feel like life's getting a little bit back to normal, at least in our part of the world, because the Tony Awards, the Olivier's are happening. Shows are out there and being watched for the first time in ages. Somebody called me up. My friend Diego called me up and said, I'm coming to New York. I want to see theater. What should I see? Help me out. And we went through the shows and I said, okay, he wanted to see Hamilton. They've never seen it live. I'm like, okay, this, that, the other would be $400, $400. He's like, it's been out for years. I'm like, welcome to Broadway. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But other big shows in the UK, the best reason to watch them or to pay attention is, of course, finding out what shows you might want to watch when they come to the US. And two of the big musicals, along with Life of Pi, are Back to the Future, the musical, and Get Up, Stand Up, the Bob Marley special, or the Bob Marley musical, I should say. So I'll bet we'll be seeing those shows on Broadway any minute now, or in case of Back to the Future, I guess, 1985. Right, or 1955, yeah. Yeah, they could go back and compete with, you know, the King and I or whatever was up on on Broadway back then. You know what? uh, That whole line, where we're going, we don't need roads because we don't have them. We're in a theater, so there are no (laughs) roads. Now, uh, everything old is new again, as we were just kind of pointing out. So forget podcasts, okay? Just, Just forget them. Yeah. Now, what I mean by that is live radio is where it's at. Okay, everybody knows that. That's what Amazon believes anyway. It's just launched a new app called AMP. This allows users to host a live radio show drawing on the millions of songs in the Amazon Music Library. People can call in and get on air as well. So it's kind of like radio. Celebs like Nicki Minaj are touted to create content for the service. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? And Michael... Why? Wait, Michael, why are you walking out the door? Michael! <laughs> if it's over, it's over. I can't be bothered. <laughs> when, when, does your, when does your AMP show start? When, uh, yeah. Um, is this exciting? Um, I, I, uh, Spotify has also done something so that people can, or is it Apple, also done stuff so people can 
uh, access their library of music and create a radio show and use licensed music to to do the show and have the thing and all that sort of stuff. It seems less of a competition to Clubhouse and more of a competition to terrestrial radio and iHeartRadio, uh, as long as they can get real people to do it and listen to other real people doing it. I've done radio and I, I had a lot of fun, so who knows? Yeah, I guess uh, at some point you will hear, oh my gosh, you, you, so-and-so, they're an amp star. Just yeah, like, that's, you know. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, what you, that's what you need. And of course, if uh, Back to the Future went back to 1955, it would comp be competing on Broadway with The Pajama Game, which won Best Musical, uh, Mary Martin and Peter Pan. Uh, that was another big winner in, uh, in musicals. So, and Fanny is a musical I've never heard of, but maybe it's based on the French play. So Pajama Game and Peter Pan. That's what Back to the Future is going to have to face down at the ninth annual Tony Awards. Well, I'll tell you, I don't think Girl from the North Country, which I saw in New York, is going to be winning any Tony Awards at all when the Tonys it's, are announced. It's, it's nominated. It is? Oh, sure. The Tony Awards or the Olivier's? It's, no, the Tonys. It's nominated. Yeah. What Did the nominations for the Tony Awards come out already? Uh, Yeah. Girl from the North Country, which is a musical set to the tune of Bob Dylan's songs. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I thought, okay. I thought the awards were out. I apologize for that. Yeah. Well, w when it happens, Bob Dylan will have to kind of, uh, I guess, uh, please himself, you know, satisfy himself with uh, releasing a new book this fall. He'll say, I didn't get the Tony, but I have a new book. First time in 18 years. Big dealer, big, big deal, yeah, big dealer, big whoop. Well, it's a big whoop, but it's Bob Dylan. It's Bob Dylan. I'm very excited. It's Bob Dylan. So it's so. a big whoop? <laughs> no, it's a big deal. Oh, it's, okay. He has a book out, but no, it's exciting. It sounds cool, actually. It's not his new memoir. It's not Chronicles Volume 2. Volume 1 came out in 2004, won the Pulitzer Prize. It's the philosophy of modern song, and he's written 60 individual essays about great songs and what makes them great and how they work. He covers songs by Elvis Costello, Hank Williams, Nina Simone, Stephen Foster, you name it. I am all in on that. I'm very excited by that, I have to say. I say we get him on the show. Absolutely. Good idea. Yeah. yeah. No, nobody might understand. You know, remember when like he, he and Tom Petty, nobody could understand a word they were saying. <laughs> do you remember? That was like back in the eighties, I think. Uh, in any case, I do like the fact that he wins the Nobel prize for literature and then writes a book. That's, and I know no, he wrote a book. Not, I know he wrote, he wrote a book, book first. He wrote yes. that first. Yeah, I know. It's no, he had another book. He had books before that as well. Poetry and stuff. Tarantulism. Oh, okay. Yeah. So nice try. Well, is he selling any CDs? Because speaking of Dylan, Michael, actually, do you have his album Highway 61 revisited on CD? Why, yes, I do. Well, you know, you're not alone. In fact, someone may have bought a Dylan album on CD this past year. For the first time in a long time, CD sales in 2021 actually went up to almost $600 million. Vinyl sales exploded during the pandemic to hit more than $1 billion, and physical music sales as a whole increased for the first time in more than a decade. Of course, that $1.6 billion isn't close to the $8.6 billion generated by streaming in the U.S., but it's not chump change either. Big deal or big whoop? Um, it's a big deal. A billion dollars, 1.6 billion is still that. I assume vinyl will come back down. Everybody seemed to buy a turntable and buy more vinyl last year because of the pandemic. And it went up by like 40%. That's not going to be sustained. So when physical sales drop next year, 
don't let everybody trick you. Oh, see, the vinyl craze is over. It's like, no, no, no. There was a spike. Now we're back to maybe normal. And, you know, it's not going to grow that much more, I think. People aren't going to be that excited to spend 30 or $40 on a copy of an album they can get for free on streaming. But let's just put it in perspective. $1.6 billion for physical media. Uh, $10.3 billion for physical and streaming combined. That doesn't compare to 2000 the year 2000 when cd sales alone generated 13 billion dollars so you know we're still not back to where we were before streaming you know kicked the legs out of uh, the the music sale business so we're still looking to get back to a level of profitability that we had before all these massive changes took place when are you and saying vinyl that maybe, and cd are not the answer are you saying that maybe maybe the industry traded analog dollars for digital dimes you know, I, know I you love do. that phrase. Oh, yeah. you love saying that. Absolutely. I love it. It's kind Thank of an inside baseball kind of thing that you say. Yeah, it is actually. Well, so it must be time for inside baseball where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, Michael, do you want to explain how this week's guest will affect our listeners? Because well, I if they're lucky, they will head to Jazz Fest in New Orleans uh, this April and May or in 2023 or down the road. Yes, and they will also gain weight when they get there. Just FYI, warning, you will gain weight. <laughs> Our guest today is Frank Marshall, as we promised, one of the most acclaimed producers in the business, often alongside his wife, Kathleen Kennedy, via their company, Kennedy Marshall. Marshall has been nominated as a producer for Best Picture six times over the years, and only six people have been nominated more often, and two of them he knows really, really well, in fact. Now his work as a director is being recognized more and more as, after work on four successful feature films and TV shows like the miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. Marshall is enjoying great success in the world of documentaries. His film, The Bee Gees, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart, received a well-deserved Emmy nomination for Best Documentary and the best reviews of his career. Now he's got a new film, Jazz Fest, a New Orleans story, debuting at South by Southwest, taking place right now, and being distributed by Sony Pictures Classics later this year. I always have to pause when I say that. I don't know why. Frank Marshall, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Nice well, to be here. Thank you so much. Obviously, music is in your blood. Your dad is Jack Marshall, who is a major musical talent, a guitarist, a composer, a arranger, a, a, a big producer in the 50s and 60s. He worked with Shelly Mann, uh, one of my favorite drummers. He did the theme music for the Munsters. He recorded with all sorts of artists, and he helped arrange Peggy Lee's classic Fever. Uh, music is in your blood. So what instrument did you play as a kid? Uh, I actually played the trumpet as a kid. Um, uh, you would have thought the guitar. I kind of come no. from a family of guitars, but uh, my dad, uh, uh, I guess it was the brass section at my uh, junior high school that uh, I, need, I had to be in that. And then the marching band uh, aspect of it was uh, kind of attractive. Uh, uh, the trumpet in the style of? Yeah, it's a cherry, uh, uh, cherry blossom. What was his name? He was my teacher, actually. Oh, um, but I can't remember his name. That's all right. But, you know, your music has been Randy Brooks. There it Randy is. Brooks. Oh, OK, cool. Randy Brooks. And uh, and I, I kind of I love Jack Sheldon, who worked with my dad, you know, the jazz trumpet player. But um, I didn't have the chops. So I. <laughs> I, I took up the guitar when I was about 12. 
Oh, I, I'm still, as you can probably see, but you know, listeners can't see this, but behind me, I'm I'm still trying. I still don't have the chops, but I'm still trying to, to play. <laughs> well, you turned to loving music and you've got uh you started out when you were doing your first directing, doing documentaries about making right. of movies that you were producing, and now you've really come into uh a new era of your career as a director focusing on documentaries. Like we mentioned the great Bee Gees documentary, which I, which I think is just terrific. It really does them justice. The James Taylor and Carol King docs, both were for HBO max. And now you've got jazz fest. Um, I, it looks like from the notes that you're the person you directed the film with, uh, was his first time at jazz fest was 2019. Your first time going to the festival. It was actually my second. Um, I had been there once before with my good friend, Jimmy Buffett, uh, but it was uh, I, I had not stayed for the whole double weekend, and it's really worth doing if you can do it. Uh, if you well, can, it's, it's during con. That's the only reason I'd never been to, uh, to Jazz Fest. It's during con. I would always miss Jazz Fest and be like, oh, yeah. Every I have friends who go and live there practically. You know, they love it so much. Yeah, it's just such a special experience, and uh, hopefully, we capture some of that in the movie. But there's just such a diversity of everything, uh, culture, music, food, uh, heritage, uh, people. Um, and uh, that's what I really loved about it. And, um, you know, it closes at seven. So you have time then to go out and, and explore New Orleans. <laughs> and, and eat more French food Porter. and listen to more music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Wait exactly. a second. A music festival that closes at seven? Yeah, how about that? Oh, yeah, it's great. Has Coachella figured this out? You know, I'm <laughs> there's a five in my age and it's uh, not at the end. And uh, if it only closed earlier, I'd probably well, go. again. There's not a lot of good food around Coachella. So no, that's true. Might, that yeah. is. So that now is you, you, you chose to make this a film about Jazz Fest as much as it is a film about the 2019 year, which was the 50th anniversary. You have, of course, a lot of performances from from jazz and gospel and blues to pop stars like Pitbull and Katy Perry. But you chose to make this about the festival as well as capturing that year. You could have made it a pure concert film like Jazz on a Summer's Day about the Newport Jazz Festival, or you could have, uh, you know, done all sorts of things. When did you decide to say we want to make it about the whole history and capture all these people while they're still alive, like Ellis Marsalis and, of course, the founder of Jazz Fest, who unfortunately is no longer longer with us yeah it was uh you know when you when you the first idea was to at least shoot the festival because of the 50th anniversary and then as i started talking to quint davis about this the other co-founder um it really sounded to me like they had a lot of great archival stuff and a lot of mm -hmm. performers and artists that were there in 2019 had performed over the years so i thought it'd be cool to you know find footage of them when, you know, from 20, 30 years ago, like Irma Thomas, uh, who's been there almost every time and see her sort of grow and and love this festival every year uh, as it went by. But, you know, when you do these archival hunts, they're kind of like little treasure uh, treasure hunts. And you find these little golden uh, pieces of, of not only photos, but in our case, we found great 16 millimeter footage of George Ween at the very first festival with Mahalia Jackson. <laughs> and so then I, you know, I thought, well, we've got to tell the history of the festival, what it took, why it perseveres, why it's so important to the people and the artists. And it's not just the music, it's everything else. Well, and, you, you know, when you were shooting uh, George Ween, because you had a, a, a kind of updated, well, you know, I guess, footage from 2019, along with uh, the Marsalis family, uh, of course, that was shot in 2019. 
We didn't know necessarily what was going to happen. And you didn't know necessarily what was going to happen. Did that change? Did, you know, obviously Ellis Marcellus passed away, as did George Ween. Did that change some of your decision making process as you were making the film? Well, it really only changed a couple of cards at the end, to be honest, because uh, we wanted to honor them. Um, and and the big card that changed was no festival. <laughs> yeah, it was going to be no festival. Then it was going to be on. Then it was going to be on in 2021. And, you know, so we had to keep changing that card and updating it. But, you know, one of the things about Jazz Fest is it's persevered all these, you know, terrible things that have happened to the city. Uh, including Katrina, uh, but it was never shut down until the 50th. So it was kind of wild coincidence that on the 50th, it would be the last one for a couple of years. But other than that, um, just the uh, we had to do the mix kind of remotely because we want to get it done. Um, but, uh, you know, it didn't really slow us down. Well, you've 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 covered the the festival. You had great people in there talking about it, like of course Katy Perry uh, performing, and and uh, some of the artists and scholars. You had Gregory Porter, who is a great jazz musician, and he was a gift. I thought whenever you needed a good quote, you could cut to Gregory. Oh, Porter. he was so so articulate and and so profound in his comments about what the whole thing was about. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but then you have Earth, Wind and Fire that is, was also their 50th anniversary. So there were so many cool things about it. And, uh, and one the best of the was Ben Jaffe, who was born nine, <laughs> nine months, months after the after first. The first. Uh, again, <laughs> another one, which you don't know until you start talking to them. You know, so the interviews were very important. And then I go, oh, you just can't make that up. So, you know, then we would take that. And then he had baby pictures and he had pictures of him with his dad with the tuba. And it was just great stuff. Who was asking the questions at the interviews? Uh, well, Ryan Suffern, my co-director, and I traded off on doing the interviews. And why did you decide to uh, have two directors? Because you're trying to capture this one tumultuous week of uh, events? Yeah, there was no time. You know, you had to be in two places at once. We had 30 people working. We had three camera crews. So we would trade off from state. And a lot of the performances were at the same time. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, it was for that reason that, that it took two of us to get it done. Just like we get to watch the festival grow up uh, as you track it over the years, you've got to see Ryan, who worked at Kennedy Marshall and has come into his own as a documentary filmmaker as well. That has to be fun. Now, directing a film side by side with him has to be a real treat after he's been with you for over a decade now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. He got started doing Steven Spielberg's eight millimeter home movies. And now he's a director of the Jazz Fest. It's pretty cool. Well, have documentaries, uh, you know, you've made several of them now. Is it more of a commercial endeavor now than it was, say, even 10, 15, 20 years ago? Are you able ago? to get them made now? Is it easier, yeah. the funding of it? Yeah, people actually, yeah, actually there, there's a real renaissance, uh, part of it due to, to COVID and everybody being home looking for stuff to watch. But I think what's happened is that people realize that watching documentaries is not like having to take medicine. You know, it's <laughs> not a history lesson. They can be entertaining and you can find out some really cool things. And certainly the music side of it, you know, people say to me, oh, the Bee Gees, all I do is play Bee Gees music now. I introduced my kids to the Bee Gees. You know, they didn't know that that was the Bee Gees. So it's um, it's really been, as I said, a renaissance of these kind of movies. And, um, and you actually can get them made now in the proper way. It's being released theatrically. So what, yeah. how does that, was it that always the intention 
That was always, yeah, that was always the intention. Uh, and I'm really pleased that Sony Classics has stuck with us through this and keeps pushing the release date back because this movie needs to be seen and heard in a movie theater. And we're not going to let it go on a streamer. Um, and they've been great about that. And uh, uh, it's, um, you know, there are some movies that are OK uh, on your television, but not this one. Yeah, and you really started uh, in documentaries too. I mean, I'm not sure if the credit connected to directed by John Ford is accurate, but you certainly worked on The Last Waltz, one of the great music documentaries of all time. Yeah, and, I've I've always liked docs, and you've become a producer, of course, of, of of major note, as we said at the beginning. Should every filmmaker director become a producer first? I mean, what what did you bring to the table other than I am going to come in on budget? What did you bring to the table? What did being a producer first help you when you turned to directing? Well, I think that documentary documentaries are kind of the opposite of what I call my day job feature movies mm -hmm. <clears throat> in that you have no idea. There's no script. You don't know what you're going to do every day. It's it's very uh it's very flexible and free flowing and there's a lot of freedom. And, you know, whereas in a, making a movie, I know what we're doing about every hour. We've got a script, we've got a page, we've got a schedule. When making a doc, it's, it's, it's really liberating. And therefore you need to be more of a producer and have that producer hat on because you're solving problems. You're, you're figuring out where do I go now to get this or how do I get this? Or, so it's a different kind of mindset. And uh, I think um, that being a producer kind of trains you for that kind of thinking. It's got to be exciting to see so many projects and so many things that you've worked on continue and grow and flourish. You're going to be at South by Southwest with this film. Uh, one of the young actors from uh, Temple of Doom has got a film there at South by Southwest. Back to the Future, the musical is opening up in the West End or already has, of course. Maybe you went over to see it. I don't know. That will certainly come to Broadway, I imagine. Uh, it seems uh, unlikely that it wouldn't. Uh, you've got a new Indiana Jones movie you're making. So it's got to be rich. You really see your career. It just keeps sort of refreshing and regrowing itself. And here you you are returning to the documentary some of the things that you started at the beginning uh, and it's it's you you feel like you've switched into new gear because you made four feature films and by our lights from the outside we don't look at the books but they all look commercially successful they all look like people made money on them uh the, the last two even more so you made the the only film i think outside of fast and furious that paul walker was a lead actor in and was a success uh, so you had a great track record and i imagine it was your choice not to continue doing that for a while. Uh, you're obviously very busy in your day job. But yeah, what, and what made you come back to directing? Why didn't you make more uh, commercial films, uh, you know, fiction films? Well, uh, directing is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and for me, it's it's a singular focus and I can't do anything else uh, creatively when I'm directing a, a big feature. There's just it's just the way I am. Some people can and I'm I'm not like that. And so I enjoy the producing side of it, too. And uh, these projects that come along, there are a couple that come along that only I feel I want to tell the story about. And one was Eight Below with Paul Walker and the dogs. I love yeah. dogs. Yeah. And, uh, and now that's sort of what's happening with these docs. Like, you know, who gets to tell James Taylor and Carol King's story Friendship. a little yeah. bit uh, and, uh, and, and to listen and show that music? You know, I, I'm in, you know, but I want to tell that story myself. And it was the same with the Bee Gees. So um, 
but I don't have to be at the set at five thirty in the morning. You know, See, I, yeah, I thought I thought you looked at your last three movies. You looked at Alive, uh, good performance by Ethan Hawke, and you looked at Congo and yeah. Eight Below, and said. You know, making a movie in New Orleans during that might be fun rather than, you know, eight below, yeah. literally. Yeah. And it's only eight days of shooting. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, I, we had young Indiana Jones. Was there ever thought when you had a, a River Phoenix in that movie that there might be some other project down the road with that? Because he was so great in the movie and he did such a great performance as a young Indiana Jones. It was a, a beautiful physical performance, which is so important to Harrison Ford, the way he captured, the way he ran and stuttered. And uh, I had to feel like that was a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm sure, you know, I, it's hard to remember back that far, but I'm sure that would, would have been a discussion uh, of a prequel and, you know, more of those years before Harrison became indie. Well, you've seen everything in the world. Uh, it feels like there's so much stuff on streamers and television. It's overwhelming a little bit. Are, are we in a bubble? Is this got to come back down a little bit? Yeah, I think it's going to come back down as people start to get out. I mean, you know, movies are a social experience going to the movies you know you if you're going to a comedy you want to be in a movie theater with you know 500 of your closest friends laughing or strangers you know it's it's and it's a social experience so i think we're always going to have movie theaters and movies i do think that now uh it's going to settle back down but th the good thing for us on the doc front is people have realized that it's worth going out to see a documentary so I i'm pretty pleased with that was there a performance that you had to cut or was there something that you left out of of the film that you think oh i just wish we had more time um no, I, I listen, I, I would love to have seen the full performance of a, a bunch of numbers like Herbie Hancock. Um, yeah. You know, uh, but we just didn't have time. And, and you know, it you have to pick your battles and and pick your your ways of telling the story to keep the flow going. And, you know, we went from jazz to jazz to jazz and then we had to, you know, uh, go on to something else, but I, I don't think there's a there's a performance that we shot that we had to leave out. They're all in there. Well, you know, I felt the same way with Summer of Soul, another terrific movie where I, I watched it. And it was a great film about that concert series, and I thought I was I love this. It's exactly what I want it to be. I'd also like to see on a streamer like the the, the week of gospel, the week of jazz. Give me the whole, give me that concert. I know you can't show every minute of every performance, but do that concert film because boy, and the jazz fest that must be such a temptation. Well, that's what was so great about the James Taylor and Carol King uh, uh, piece in that they had all this footage they shot in 2010 of when they were on tour for the uh, Troubadour reunion tour. And um, it, it's a concert film. Yeah. You know, we do the oh, whole yeah. song. We do 18 songs with little bits of interstitial docs in it, but it's not really a doc. It's, it's a concert film. So you, you get to hear the whole film. So that was really enjoyable. Right. Like the last waltz. Yeah, it was. Well, that kind of inspired me. Uh, I look back at what Marty did. Yeah, it's good inspiration to have. Yeah. And what's your What's your next inspiration? What music are you obsessing over that you think I have to tell this story? What artist or <laughs> album or music are you just crazy about? Um, uh, the Beach Boys. Oh, well. oh, that would be amazing. Well, that would actually be. The story's been told. What new needs to be done? Is it a particular album like oh, Friends, yeah. not getting the the deserving it needs? Or yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm doing this with Tom Zimney, who I did the Johnny Cash 
mm-hmm. uh, doc with um, the gift. Yeah. And he's the director. I'm the producer. But I grew up here in Southern California. I grew up in the surf scene. So there are a lot of stories you haven't heard yet. <laughs> All right. At Capitol Records. Also at Capitol Records. Remember that with my dad. I used mm-hmm. to see them. So there's a lot of connections for me in the Beach Boys doc. Oh, that's awesome. As a producer, did you, uh, well, I guess you're a director on, on this film, uh, on Jazz Fest, but clearance for these songs oh, yeah. has got to be a nightmare. And when you were cutting, you have so many. And I just, every time there would be a new song, I thought, oh my God, the poor producer who had to clear all these songs. How did they do it? I mean, was that ever a concern or was it just shoot it and we'll worry about it later? Well, no, it is always a concern. But the great thing, another great thing about the renaissance of these music docs is that the labels are understanding that it is a good thing to have this music out there because it reinvigorates the catalogs. They sell more, they list, you know, more people listen to it on Spotify. So, uh, you know, we, we, and we, it depends on what the doc is. Uh, but you can get a favored nations and everybody kind of knows to agree. I mean, if you're going to go to the Beatles, that's going to be one thing. But, you know, when we're talking to Earth, Wind and Fire, they want their stuff out there. So there's a, a reasonable uh, way you can uh, make everybody happy. Well, I guess, uh, Frank, thank you for taking the time to, to join us, especially. I mean, you're out promoting a film during South by Southwest during in the middle or at the end, hopefully, of a pandemic. So (laughs) thank thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Oh, my pleasure. Great to talk to you guys. Hope we can do it again. Well, that was great of Frank Marshall to take the time to stop by. It was really a fascinating discussion. I hated to see it end, uh, though it's obviously a really long show already. And I also hate to see some careers end. That's That means, of course, it's time for our obituary section. This is a sad one. Little kids and kids who are young at heart will find this a little tough to hear. Emilio Delgado of Sesame Street has died at 81. I should say Luis, the owner of the fix-it shop on Sesame Street, died at the age of 81. A handyman in every sense. He could fix anything. And his marriage to Maria... In 1988, was a TV sensation up there with Luke marrying Laura on General Hospital and Tiny Tim marrying Miss Vicky on The Tonight Show. Okay, Luis didn't really die. It's the actor Emilio Delgado who did. He played Luis for more than 40 years. You know, he's just part of your home. Yeah, I remember that. That not that I was young, but I remember it being like you know in the newspaper even when he married, it was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. No, no pun intended. I know we're not on that segment anymore, but uh, it was uh, you know it was something that was reported on. Let's put it that way. And who else died? Oscar winner William Hurt. He died at the age of seventy-one, apparently from uh, prostate cancer. I've been checked. Please get checked. You know that's what you need to do. You'll feel a lot better after you do it. Um, he had a great 1980s, I'll tell you. When I looked through his career, he had a nice, long, distinguished career. But boy, the 80s was just the decade when he was doing everything on stage and film. What a great career. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I remember him from broadcast news. But of course, he was in Body Heat, The Big Chill, Gorky Park. Uh, I guess he was in uh, a a Cronenberg version of Dune, which was a series. No, not a Cronenberg version of Dune. Uh, 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 he was in a TV miniseries version oh, of a Dune, history of and then David yeah. Cronenberg's movie A History of Violence, for which he garnered a fourth Oscar nomination. He was o- nominated three years in a row for Kiss of the Spider Woman, for which he won, Children of a Lesser God, for which his then-girlfriend Marley Matlin won, and then Broadcast News, in which he did something I thought he would never be able to do, and that was play somebody who was dumb. 
because he was a very brainy, intelligent actor, and I would not have thought he would do a good job at playing a dumb person. But the guy, the anchor, was not so bright. <laughs> but he did a really good job at him. He also, of course, a lot of work on stage. He was a Tony nominated for Hurley Burley in 1985. His film debut was with the movie Altered States. Some very good movies in that decade. And then, of course, other work before and after that, though it's sad but important to remember as Marley Matten is up in the conversation in her film Coda, that in her memoir, she talked about the both physical and emotional abuse that she suffered when they were in a relationship. He did not deny that, though he said they both did things for which they regretted and they had both grown and he felt sorry for any pain he may have caused her. But when she details the things he said and did, it was awful. The night she won the Oscar, she said he was very upset and worried that she would win. He just won the year before, by the way, but he was kind of annoyed that she won. And when they got into their limo afterwards, he excoriated her and was just like, People have worked all their lives to win this. And you just walk in and get it. She is the youngest woman to ever win Best Actress Oscar, by the way. He said, go get, go take acting lessons. I mean, it was just awful. You think, oh, my God, forget. I mean, there was physical abuse as well. But, oh, that's just a dreadful thing to say the night of winning the Oscars. But uh, it's, it's hard to hear. I didn't know about that when it came out. Her memoir was not that widely covered because. Now we're in a new era with me too. So very sad to hear about that and be reminded of that on the day he has died or the week he's died, but it's important to give her voice as well. Uh, somebody who will not have a voice anymore is Conrad Janis, who was uh, the star of Mork and Mindy. That's right. He died at the age of 95. He was 94. He was on Broadway as a kid, did a lot of live TV, played a mean trombone in real life and guested on everything from Get Smart to Frasier. But I, this is, he's best remembered for playing the father of Pam Dauber on Mork and Mindy. He's also famous for being one of the victims of one of the dumbest moves in TV history. Were you, around, were you old enough to watch Mork and Mindy when it came out? Yes. Uh, 78. I don't I, know how, I forget how old you are. It was 1978. How old were you? I was 12. I was uh, um, not 12. <laughs> yeah. So it debuted on Thursdays at 8 and was an immediate smash hit massive, massive game-changing hit. It anchored the night for ABC. It aired what was ranked top 30 the year before, The Waltons, and the new hip young show, Chips. And in its first year, it ranked number three. It led the night off, and it ranked number three. And when the new sitcom, Angie, which was quite good too, as I recall, when they aired after in the winter, that show ranked number five. Yay! So what did ABC do? They moved the show from Thursday to Sunday, and they all, now they're, they're now airing opposite 60 Minutes, Archie Bunker's Place, One Day at a Time, Alice. They also completely redid the show. They had an out-of-the-box smash hit, but they decided Conrad Janis, who was bald, and this older woman who was on the show, played by actress, uh, um, what's her name? Uh, Cora was the character, and the actress was played, what is her name? Um, well, the character was Cora, and they were in the music store. Pam Dauber worked at her dad's music store. Mork, and Mindy would come, Mork would come in and goof with them and banter with them. So you had a little kids who were learning violin. You had young, beautiful Pam Dauber. You had her dad who was older. And then you had Cora who was even, you had multi-generation all in the music store. And ABC looked at the number three show in the country, immediate smash hit and said, oh, it's too old. Got to get rid of these old people. So they immediately got rid of the music store, downgraded Conrad Janis and the actress playing Cora to like minor supporting. They would pop into her house. Oh, hey. So it's all awkward and stupid. She used to work at the store and they basically, they still appeared on the show, but not nearly as regularly. The set was not the same. They had younger people brought in so they could have younger people for Mork to, and it didn't work. 
it didn't work. It was the show immediately took a major tail dive and they were, Oh, wait, wait, wait. They tried everything to get it back again. And it was just a, just a dumb, dumb thing. You have a hit show and you say, let's redo it. Let's, let's change things around. I mean, the mind boggles at it. It went from number three to 27 in year two, 49 in season three and ranked 60 in its fourth and final season way to destroy a franchise and make it a nothing. Oh, and Morgan Fairchild was in the show too. She was a friend of Pam Dauber. So you had a sex spot. And Morgan's a smart, intelligent, wonderful woman, but her character was snooty and awfully sexy. But you had every age range, perfect family-friendly show, and ABC screwed it up. Oh, I was so angry when I was a kid watching that show. Why have they changed? What's happened? Where is everybody? I was angry at the time. I didn't even know what was going on. I can't believe you mentioned my wife. Morgan <laughs> Fairchild. <laughs> and if you don't get that joke, look up John Lovitz, Morgan Fairchild, and you will be, I, I, you're welcome. That's all I will say. You're welcome. Well, I love it when people write to us or email or call us or whatever. Sperling, I know we have a letter this week. Uh, let's, let's hear about it. What, what did they say? And who was it? Well, it was Assad Butt, or uh, I, I guess it's Assad B-U-T-T. So, and do we know his company? He's the CEO and founder of Rifelian or Rifelian. Do you know this company? I actually, is it not Rife Lion? Because I have I no idea. Gonna... Rife Lion. Okay, that's that where that makes sense. Have yeah, you heard of I, it? What I, do they do? like you. I, I was like, it must be Rife Lion or They're a media <laughs> company that elevates diverse voices. I'm looking at the website for Rife Lion. Uh, they have shows, original series like King of the World, which is a seven-part podcast series about American Muslim life after 9-11. Very interesting. That sounds fascinating, actually. Uh, but that's a website that they're partnered with American Muslim Project. Uh, or, you know, or, the, yeah. And they have, uh, what else? They have a monthly newsletter. They have immigrantly cost cultural conversations. They have uh, all sorts of things going on on uh, the... Um, Riflion.com. Riflion. Yeah. So there is a lion. It's a, you've got the, uh, uh, the, the crescent moon, of course, and then the lion. So it's Rife Lion. So that's good to see. So uh, very cool. I'm not, I'm not familiar with this company, but I'll be checking it out. And he wrote to, Assad wrote to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. He writes, hi, both. Love the podcast as always. Sincerely, Assad. No, he actually did go on uh, to say, I found your discussion about festivals banning, partially banning. So some banned, some partially banned Russian filmmakers to be quite interesting. Like you, I don't know what the right answer is. I wonder how you both felt in 2003 and later when the U.S. invaded Iraq. Would you have called for festivals to ban American filmmakers from participating? Seems ludicrous to imagine anyone doing that, even those Americans staunchly advocating for an invasion. A quick search showed actors like Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford were pro-war, pro-Bush. What struck me was the comment that you have to be, quote-unquote, on the right side of history. If that was the criteria, all festivals would be banning American filmmakers due to their wrongful wars and military action happening across the world in places like Yemen and Syria. Uh, and then he, you know, from, from Assad, uh, and I would say, yeah, I remember the, the very night that, at least it was night here in the U.S., when in 2003, in March, when when uh, the U.S. went into Iraq, and I remember where I was, and I remember the first thing I said was, "This is the be like all the goodwill we that we earned after 9/11 squandered." Like I was dead set against it. I was very upset about it. To this day, I'm upset about it. If you couldn't tell, I thought it was a stupid move then. I think it's a stupid move now, uh, and it proved 
you know, I think history proved me out there. There were no weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and I was a little surprised, actually, that year that as many American filmmakers were invited to Cannes, as I thought for sure they would kind of maybe not pause, but like maybe only invite one or two. Instead, they were like four or five. They would invite only Oliver Stone. Right, something like that. <laughs> well, uh, Assad, thank you very much for writing. I'm um, looking at your bio on the Rife Lion page. You've got uh, you love pet care and education. You've got uh, you've been working in broadcast TV and video. Uh, you helped launch Bridges TV, the first American Muslim lifestyle network. So that's very cool. And you served as first news director, producer, and anchor. We can follow you on Twitter. We'll include a link to that in our show notes. Um, as, as we said in the show, I hope we did, we do not support the banning of filmmakers. Uh, we think individual filmmakers should not be judged by the actions of their government, both because you can't control your government, like here in the U.S., and you're not always free to speak out as fully as you would like in other countries, like perhaps Russia and Iran and other places. So I think the places that said, look, we don't want official organizations from that country coming because they have illegally invaded this country— that absolutely applied to the United States in the Iraq war. I was doing a lot of political blogging at the time. Uh, not that you'd want to bother looking at my little tweets and blogs, but I absolutely opposed the war and would think that was a perfectly reasonable thing for people to do. Ban the country. Don't necessarily ban the filmmakers because they are individuals. They do, are not their government. If they're wildly in support of the government, and you think you don't want them there. Great. Don't invite them. If you think that they are a counter voice and saying we do not approve of what our government is doing, as I recall, it was one of the biggest protests around the world, including in the United States, against the uh, attack on, on Iraq when that was happening uh, before that invasion took place. Then, of course, the poll numbers change and people support it because their troops are there. That's wrong, too. But that happens. So, you know, we do our best. But I don't think we're being hypocritical because I would have absolutely supported Khan or somebody saying no U.S. delegations, but individual filmmakers will consider on a case to case basis. I think that's what they should do here for Russia and China and Ukraine and any other country in the world whose politics you would you disagree with, because the country is not the people. The government is not the people. And you know, everybody's different and you want to give voice to people that you agree with or and sometimes even give voice to people you don't agree with if you think they have a valid position, not a position of hate, not a position of breaking international law and torturing and killing people uh, or, or torturing people the way the U.S. has done in Guantanamo Bay. People are held without any rights in Guantanamo Bay, even though we know they're innocent because the government is too afraid to release them. And that's that's a crime against humanity. So, uh you know, I hope we got that across and we'd like to say it again. We do not support the banning of Russian individual Russian filmmakers. They are not their government. And uh, it's complicated. It's not easy to know who you should invite or not invite. Or maybe this isn't the time. If other people think, no, we shouldn't have any Russians on our red carpet. I won't disagree with you, especially if you're a Ukrainian producer. I don't think that's an evil thing to do. Nobody needs a red carpet appearance in their lives. So, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world. If for a year or two, you don't get to go on the red carpet, you'll survive. But we do appreciate your writing in. Look forward to checking out uh, your podcast and learning more about uh, the people you raise up. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I remember when you mentioned uh, Guantanamo Bay, and I, I kind of latch on to that because I remember when I first heard about Guantanamo Bay and that, you know, a year or two later, things were not moving at Guantanamo Bay. Everybody was still in the same place. I said, great. So now we're going to have where we're, this is wrong. I mean, just politically and criminally it's, wrong. It's, right, yeah. Uh, and I said, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we're going to have movies like uh, Come See the Paradise, right? Where we, we go, oh, right. how horrible we were. Shouldn't have done and, that. 
Yeah. And when somebody uh, said, oh, so what, you know, this was like, I think it was last year. Somebody said, oh, what movie are you watching? Uh, I was, you know, in a screening room. I said, oh, I'm watching the movie I knew would be made back in 2002, 2003. I knew it would take 20 years, <laughs> but somebody would make a movie about what ridiculous morons we were being with Guantanamo Bay. And sure enough, the Mauritanian with Tahar Rahim and Jodie Foster was it. And of course, as he would probably point out, there was no worldwide outrage, at least not sustained to this level, when Russia tore apart Chechnya, which is, of course, 95% Muslim, or vast majority of the people are Muslim. Uh, you know, there was not worldwide outrage. Big countries get away with doing things they shouldn't get away with. That's why it's important to speak out. Well, I think we've... We've spoken. I know that people hate it when we get political. So yeah, this whole episode has been political, except for Frank Marshall. Thank God for that. We can talk about Irma Thomas and New Orleans. Yes, and and jazz, one of my favorite musics. Uh, said the trumpet. One of my favorite musics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's kind of why I said it that way. I knew. He- I knew you would get a laugh out of that. Uh, in any case, you can subscribe to uh, our show. And hear Frank every week. Actually, you could just download this episode every week, and that's how you'd hear Frank Marshall every week because I don't think he's coming back next week. But uh, you can subscribe to our show in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher. Uh, and in some of those places, you can actually download other musics as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know what? Please do in any one of those uh podcast aggregators that allows you to rate and review our show. Please do. It helps us out when you do. That information can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to, well, all the stories we've discussed today, the ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox is our email address. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is uh, where you can like our page there. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. Their musics can be found on their website, who is MGMT.com. And I think I've I've beaten the musics joke to death. Yes. Yes, you have. Okay. That's your your signature move. So it's okay. Yes. Yes. Oh, that was a bad joke. Let me tell it five more times in the next two and a half minutes. Uh, in any case, uh, you know, Michael, much like MGMT, you have a website and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? I was going to say musics.com, but it's taken. <laughs> so, <laughs> so somebody's sitting on it, hoping you'll pay them good money. Maybe Sperling will for that joke. But until then, <laughs> you can find me on michaelgiltz.com. You know where you won't find Dolly Parton, by the way? Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She said, hey, you know what? I have never really recorded rock. That's cool for her. I mean, she, you know, I, I think as a songwriter, she's hugely influential, but I totally respect what she And she said, you know what? Maybe I'll record a rock and roll album. My husband's been dying for me to do it. I'm like, cool. You know, go for it, Dolly. We'll, we'll all support it. You'll be the first person to ever record one album and immediately get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, it took her many, many decades of eligibility before she got on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame shortlist. So she was probably not going to make the final cut, but she's awfully cool. She'll, she'll survive without it. That's true. Uh, and you're going to survive by people going to michaelgilts.com and reading some of your coverage of the entertainment industry. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.